This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Hey, we're back at uh, Apex 2023, Carm Capriato, Remarkable Results Radio, always looking to push the envelope on automotive aftermarket think as we work together to improve your personal and business success as we advance the aftermarket. I'm with Greg Bunch, Transformers Institute. How you doing? I'm doing great. Good Greg, to be here. Good to have you here. And uh, man, Fonslow, Riverside in, in yep. Red Wing. In yeah. Red Wing, Minnesota. Yeah, from the yep. Diagnosing the Aftermarket A to Z podcast. Look, I invited both of you here, Matt, from a perspective of a technician, what's going on in the bays based on what Greg and I want to talk about. And that is don't watch the news because when you do, we have worldwide conflict, we have division, we have interest rates going crazy, we have an economy issue, we have inflation. And if we're paying attention to the doom and gloom, we may be recoursing our business a bit. But if we want to just say, it's just crazy, I'm just going to wake up one day when this is all over, you may have missed a misstep on your business. Yes. And history says that's true. And we can talk about that. And that's what we want to talk about. The objective of our show today is for me to challenge the think from both Matt and Greg about the economy, margins, advertising, cost of training, hiring top talent, labor rates. You get it. Because I think all of those thinking points here, discussion talking topics are critical for us to pay attention to. I'm one of your customers, Greg, in Transformers. I have two or three shops, single shop, multi-shop. It doesn't matter. The point of it is, is you're trying to tell me, hey, Carm, do I need two or three weeks worth of payroll and cash in the bank? Do I have to really, is it my cost management? Is it my, where should we be paying attention to short-term and then potentially long-term as our industry gets out of COVID mode? Right. You know, I've been owned my business for, well, since September 1st, important date, 2001, right? So what oh, happened wow. 10 days later? Wow. Yeah. It was certainly a moment of panic. Now, fortunately, my overhead was super low. This is like I was started on my garage, as a lot of my listeners know. It was a weird week, right? Like everybody's just locked down what's going on. But probably within two weeks, people are back to, hey, life goes on. I got to get back on the road. I got to go to work, right? The initial shock of what happened. Every radio show was still covering it and everything, every news channel. But people had to get back to real life. I was in business in 2008. I forget what month it was when it, when everything really felt like it hit the fan. And at the time I had two locations. I didn't have a lot of money in the bank as you just referenced, but it was like, and we had an executive meeting. It was like, okay, do we sell one shop or abandon it or try and rent it out to somebody else and just merge and just have one shop and cut our overhead? It was a definite maybe, right? We talked about it and it was like, you know what, let's just give it a month and see what happens. And at least for me, it was like, okay, a month later we were rocking and rolling. And I think what happened is people realized I'm not going to go buy a new car. I don't know if I'm going to have a job. I don't know if I'm going to lose my house, but I got to keep my car on the road. I look at my growth trajectory from 2008 to 2012, what was going on during that time, right? We had cash for plunkers that put a, a ripple in there. But for the most part, people were not out buying new cars. You know, I have the charts to show that now, but you don't know that when you're going through it. You just no. go, wow, people are holding on to their cars now. The flip side of that, and I think this is where you're going and what, you know, the, all the chatter on the new stuff and Facebook and all that and the, all the automotive groups about the doom and gloom is people are going to, they're tightening their belts. A family that could have bought a $500,000 house only needed $90,000 a year ago because of interest rates. Now they need $135,000. 
inflation and interest rates are absolutely hitting the American consumer. And therefore, they're going to be like, no, the good part is they're going to say, let's keep the car. We don't know what's going to happen. Nobody wants to pay eight and a half percent for a car loan, but they also don't want to overpay car repair. They don't want to fix every nuke and cranny. They just want to keep it on the road. And, and that I seems to be the concern. Yes. When coaches like you pull numbers from your clients and you see a tiny dip in car count. Right. Is that something that we really need to pay attention to big time? I don't think car count necessarily is going to go down because people are just not buying new cars and people are holding on to cars okay. and they're going to get them fixed somewhere. Do they choose the shop that they know is expensive, but does really good work? Or do they go, you know what? I love those guys, but should I shop around a little bit because I know they're on the higher price? Maybe I can get a better deal, you know, on the a different part of town. Shop or, or, or get coupons or... Right. I think really honing in on our customer loyalty, on our salesmanship, on our phone skills, you know, the ability to get somebody off the phone and into our shops. I just did a multiple rounds throughout California on service advisor training. You know, it's a whole day class and we spent a lot of time on the phone. I can tell you very few shops in America measure their conversion rate of a phone call. This person is calling. They're going to bring their car somewhere. Did we get them in the shop? Right. So that's what I mean by conversion rate. Not once they're in, how much did we sell them? Did we get them off the phone and into the shop? Opportunity. Right. You know, as Peter Drucker said, you can't manage what you don't measure. Very few people measure that. We do have a program that does measure that and coaches to that. And when we can help a shop go from 55% conversion rate to 85% conversion rate, it's thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 a month in sales without spending a dollar more in marketing. You're telling me we got to run our business better and pay deep attention to every yes. area. Yeah, the sloppy success that a lot of shops have had over the last couple of years, I agree, that's coming to a screeching halt. So now it's time to, we got to hone our sales skills. We got to hone our phone skills. We got to hone our customer service skills. We got to make sure that in the IT world and in the SaaS world, they were, they're always in online retail. They're talking about a frictionless experience, right? We have to evaluate every touch point we have with the customer interaction and go, how do we reduce the friction? How do we reduce that frustration that traditionally they have, whether it's a dealership, a franchise or independent shop, there's a level of frustration that yeah. a consumer has literally just trying to get an appointment, just trying to get somebody to answer the phone. So those are the things I think that we got to work on. Fix cars faster with Shopware. Now, Shopware allows you to run your entire business in the cloud and paper-free. Now, best of all, you can track work digitally and in real time. Need to transfer a job? No problem. Need to update pricing? Done. With Shopware, you can focus on what's important, fixing cars and keeping your customers happy. You didn't get into this business to shuffle papers or scroll through email notifications, and you don't have to write the same estimate over and over or check a parts matrix to figure out parts pricing. Shopware can track that for you. Shopware empowers you, the shop owner, by powering the data you already have in your system. It's time to let Shopware handle the workflows so you can handle the cars. But don't just take our word for it. Schedule a free demonstration at GetShopware.com to see Shopware in action. The product speaks for itself. As the trusted aftermarket brand for over 100 years, Delphi Technologies is by your side for every step of the repair process. The Delphi journey doesn't stop once the parts are ordered. Wherever your journey takes you, our quality parts gives you ease of mind when getting your customer's vehicle back on the road. Technicians know and trust Delphi as a quality brand. 
Each product undergoes rigorous testing to not only meet OE standards, but also enhance it in each opportunity. From 700 hours of spray testing on chassis components to fuel pumps tested for reliability up to 150,000 miles. And safety and reliability is paramount to help vehicles drive cleaner, better, and further throughout their lives. Delphi is also committed in developing products and services to prepare technicians for the future. Take advantage of how-to videos on YouTube, technician-led trainings, and our technical support line, and more. Turn to the aftermarket parts supplier with over 100 years of OEM trust and quality. Learn more about Delphi. Visit DelphiAftermarket.com. I was uh, playing around with this new position in the company called the CXO. For a long time, I'd just play around with it on episodes. And I'd say it's really the customer experience officer. And then my challenge was, oh, I can't hire one of those. Great. That's the right answer. So get in front of your people and say, I want to hire a CXO, but I can't. But you all need to be that. Right. Well, you were at our summit last year down in Cancun where our keynote speaker was John DeJulius. And that's his big thing, right, is whether you can afford to have a true CXO in your company, somebody has to take on that role and do that. And I got to be honest, probably I didn't even read or know what a CXO was till probably two years ago and going, oh, wait a minute, there's something to this, right? So, you know, a CXO, customer service, customer journey, putting all these things together that, oh, that's the other thing. And I, I hate to just keep babbling here, but, you know, when I did the service advisor class, I'm like, does anybody even term, and this was probably well over a hundred service advisors, owners, managers in the last month. And one person raised their hand when I asked, does anybody even know what the concept of a customer journey is? And I taught at Ratchet Wrench. I taught an hour long class on that. One person out of all those people that I've been talking to over the last month with traveling and speaking, one person raised their hand that had any idea, even what the term customer journey is. Matt, what's customer journey? I'm guessing it's their experience from the phone call, initial contact. I have this issue. Can you help me with it? To, I wouldn't say even when you pay for it, it's, I don't know if you want to put a time frame on it, maybe till the next time they come, because there's the entire experience of dropping the vehicle off, interacting, having the service done, paying for it. And then hopefully. What's the post feeling that you continue to get from the shop that did really good work? Well, post feeling and yeah. Sometimes the work itself is hard to notice, but everything else, is there a follow-up, that a text message, a phone call? I'm not campaigning for one one or the other. And how do I feel after that? Am I getting bombarded now with emails, with coupons or reminders, or how is this all handled? It's, to me, that's a big question. It's it's all encompassing. Customer intimacy. So Matt, you said the right word, feeling. Yes. Okay. At our summit last year, I had a panel. We had a lot of the different vendors because each of them are part of an automotive repair shop's customer journey, right? So the first interaction, let's say it's a postcard, it's a Google ad, it's a Facebook ad, right? So what feeling does that put into that customer's mind? Then they go online to make an appointment. What's the feeling in there? What's the feeling when they talk to your service advisor when they call? What's the feeling when they pull into the parking lot? Your marketing says you're a Mercedes-Benz expert, and then there's a bunch of broken Toyotas and Chevys in the parking lot. What is that feeling? They walk in the front door. Are they greeted well? What does it smell like? What does it taste like? It's going deeper than just a touch point. It is what does the customer feel in each one of those touch points? You know, as I studied this, like with Starbucks, right? They're measuring the feeling that somebody has, right? They walk in the front door of Starbucks. They feel like, oh, I could be here longer than I want because there's a bunch of people in line but they also feel good because they smell the brewing coffee. It's an emotional 
each touch point has emotions. And what we measured out is I came up with about 24 touch points from the initial, hey, I got to get my car fixed all the way to what you were saying 12 months later, what kind of reminder am I getting to come back to that shop? Every one of those touch points needs to be thought about and engineered, not only of are we touching the customer or not, but what is the feeling they have while that touch point is happening? Yeah. When you say stuff like that, it makes me think of economics. We are credence, good service. That means we as the professionals better understand the quality of service we've provided them than they can really be expected to know. So what he's talking about has to take certain precedence over just the quality of repair, because that's going to be really hard to qualify for them. It's going to be very difficult to explain to them why what I did to repair their car is of such high quality and value. But what he's talking about is if I can help make them feel confident, feel good, have positive thoughts about the shop, the experience, the text, whatever that is, comfort, that's the big win. That's the, how I really separate myself from everyone else. The customer doesn't know they can't how know. much training, how many tools you use the latest and the greatest technique. You just did everything right. They're not going to know that. If, yeah, they may read a work order that has a lot of detail on it, but to your point, and I love it, it's the feeling that you get, curb appeal, paint, clean, no dust. The lobby, even if they don't stay, has got to be part of that experience. So last night, I went to a dinner with our with Shop Genie. They had a get-together, and I got invited to this dinner. It was a very nice restaurant. You know, so number one, the first impression, they had flames, you know, like a fireplace kind of thing up front. So... What is that? Warmth, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody was dressed really nice, you know, black outfits, you know, a sport coat. So what feeling did I have? This place is not going to be cheap, right? This exactly is not, right. I'm not going to Wendy's here. I walk in, I go to the front counter. The next thing was, you know, they ask your name. They had a tablet, right? They're not a piece of paper, but they had a tablet. Okay, what's your name? And of course I wasn't, the reservation wasn't under my name and we found out where, and it wasn't like, okay, you guys are down the hall. They didn't point. She got out from behind the counter and walked me to the private room. Yeah. Okay. So now we sit down, we're having that experience. And then the dining experience is different, right? So the beef that they came out, it was like a tomahawk hanging from this hook. And it had like two flaming something else on the side. They had a, a lady with fire coming out of her fingertips, dancing through the restaurant, right? So all these things are feeling. Now, was the food fantastic? Absolutely. Okay. And then... You know, our good friend PJ from Techmetric is there and his drink has is has blue flames coming out of it. I don't no. know what he ordered, but it was, you know, oh, some girly drink and hopefully here's this. I'm teasing him. <laughs> uh, love PJ. Okay. PJ. And then dessert comes out and literally they have fireworks like the, you know, sparklers, 4th of July sparklers coming out with these dessert. And it's like, okay, this and they were packed. Right. And I'm guessing, I don't know what I bet the average is two to $250 per plate for people to go to that restaurant. So now we're go back to, do we really have an, what's our economy? People are spending that kind of money. And the restaurant was packed. Somebody put a lot of thought into the customer journey of eating out at that restaurant. So we're going to spend two fifty dollars a plate. We're going to argue about $1,200 to keep my car on the road for another great year or up to 200 and some thousand miles. It's because we don't come across enough as professional. And we don't have the flaming drinks and the sparklers to show. Right. So we've got to do all that other stuff. In a way, it's unfortunate that your story is involving a restaurant because this is screaming the bear. Yes, it is. Not just the restaurant portion, but the experience about it. What Richie talks about at that restaurant and what the people he is interacting with are saying, like yeah, yeah. 
they're choosing to come here. Some of these people are waiting to come to this establishment. They may be waiting two weeks to bring their vehicle to this shop. Yeah. What can I do to make it the best experience they've ever had at a repair shop? He mentions The Bear. Do you know the TV show? No. It's a series on Hulu called The Bear. Yes. So Matt calls me up and he says, you got to watch The Bear. And I said, why? Because he always tells me to watch shows. Because I said so. Because he said so. Now, why would it's you a, even question him, Carl? I know. So I start watching the first episode and I went and I grabbed my yellow pad and I started to write and I watched all 20 episodes within like two weeks. Wow. I had pages of notes in the reference to our industry that so went on inside that TV is it show. about our industry or about restaurants? No, it's a, it's a restaurant, a really Fic quick synopsis. It's a fictionalized series. It's a deli in Chicago. Yeah. Oh. Run by Italian family, brother dies, wills it to the kids, and one of the kids happens to be a Michelin five-star chef. Yeah, ah, Michelin star. Okay, yep. okay, okay. Retaining a Michelin star He's a young, very young person, so he's had that kind of training. He hung out at Greg's shop for a while, and then he went out back to the family business and tried to explain to them how things really should work. Gotcha. And the, one of the characters is a starts out as a cousin while they're rebuilding the restaurant to go from just kind of a sandwich deli shop to a full-blown, I don't want to say Michelin star because that's something you earn, but a gourmet restaurant or a something very high-end that fine dining. He gets sent to another restaurant, a fine dining restaurant to kind of learn. And they start out, they have him just polishing spoons and he doesn't get it. But over time, talking to the people he's working with and explaining their position on why this is so important, he comes in with a revelation and it changes not just him, his entire life. Wow. It comes back to the restaurant. It goes back to yeah. the COO meetings that I was so fortunate to be in Buffalo in June. Right. And when you get together with like-minded people and you share your stories and everyone walks away back to their part of the world, they yeah. change course. They bring new ideas, different culture, and they say, you know what? We were really good here, but I saw really good there. Right. And our yep. really good ain't really good. Yep. And that's kind of the story of the bear. So Matt and I ended up doing an entire podcast oh, wow. on it. That's yep. fantastic. What I would like to believe is that no one from corporate or even the owner of the restaurant noticed about pointing people. So you said that. Right. You know, where's the group? You're expecting them to be like, oh, just, you know, go back and take the first right or something like that. That they walked you back there. I would like to believe that at one point, one, somebody there, a busser, a server, the hosts themselves did the pointing. That's how they used to do it. Right. And they overheard the client say like, they couldn't just walk us back here or it would have been nice if they would have just let us here. Some indication that they were not overly enthused about being pointed around like they just went to the Home Depot. Okay. And so they reported to somebody and that made it to a meeting where, okay, from now on, we're not pointing anyone anywhere. We will lead them to where they need to go. I think shops can operate like that 100%. Everybody needs to have their ears on and awareness cranked up to 11, be able to report to somebody just something they overheard. You know, I love where this went. You, you heard my beginning. There's all kinds of right. things going on, but you just almost nailed the fact that if you're not really good here, how could you have ex expectations here? Right. And if you're going to have to deal with inflation and economy and division and people saving less money and not spending the, the way they should, or they're going to overspend. Okay. Right. I, I get that's going on. The whole customer ambiance, the feel, the experience 
has got to be. You cannot discount the fact that I think your point is so well taken. It's got to be the first thing you do. Part of my service advisor training that I've been doing recently, I have a lot of statistics, right? So our friends over at AutoNet TV, and then, you know, I collect Ratchet Ranch. Anywhere I can find some surveys where people actually took time to go ask the general consumer about automotive repair experiences, okay? And I put those statistics up and I go through, and one of them that really stands out is 48% of the automotive consumer is frustrated with the level of communication they get from their auto repair shop. 48%. I got a level with you. I'm surprised it's that low. It's that low. Yeah. There was another one that I thought was low as well, but let's just say 50%, they're not happy with the communication. How do we fix that? That should be a meeting in our shop to get everybody together and go, guys, the general public is not happy with 50% of shops communication. How do we become the best communicating shop in my town, my community? What does that mean? We think we're bugging a customer when we call them seven times during the day to update them on their car. But to them, they're like, these guys are awesome. They kept me updated the whole time. Now, again, Matt, we're not going to get into the debate. Should that be a phone call, a text, an email and all that? But the fact that there was communication, right? Because what happens in a traditional shop, the car gets dropped off at eight o'clock in the morning. Everybody gets busy. It's two or three o'clock before that customer gets a call. They're already like, you know, is my car going to be done by the end of the day? We've left them guessing all day long. So now we finally call and we try and sell them a bunch of work and they're like, I need my car by the end of the day. And now they're frustrated. They got to leave it. Why didn't you call me at 10 o'clock? Right. And this all goes back to fixing operations in the shop to make sure you can do this. Right. And then you're trying to sell them all the stuff and, or they're what's even better, right. Is when they, and we listen to phone calls for all kinds of shops is when they call in at three o'clock and what does every service advisor say? Well, Carm, I was just about to call you. <laughs> Right at two thirty in the afternoon or three thirty, they're like, "Man, I gotta I, either I gotta come pick up the car, or I gotta get a ride home. What's going on?" They're already frustrated. What if they got a call at nine o'clock, at ten o'clock, at eleven o'clock, at one o'clock, and they knew exactly what's going on, good or bad? They're gonna feel like this shop is light years ahead of any other shop that I've had. Yeah, they charge a little bit more, but man, it's so much easier to deal with that shop than the guy down the street. It's like the consumer will buy the excuse. No, never buy it. We know it's an excuse. We know that you were lazy. I mean, why would we even say those words when we know the consumer, your customer knows you? I heard one guy say, you know, he kept calling the shop every time he brought his car in and they're like, oh yeah, the parts guy, they sent us the wrong part like four times in a row. And it's like, you know, you know, every time he brought his car in, it was an excuse for being late. And the consumer finally called him out and said, you know, you should probably get a new parts supplier because every time I bring my car, you tell me the same thing. Oh, <laughs> yeah. How could you be surviving if yeah. you could never get any parts? Financing, will that change when customers have an op- opportunity to finance? What do you think about that? Well, America's love to overspend, right? So yes. And that is part of the training I've been doing is, and I'm not, you know, saying, hey, you got to go with this company or that company, but you darn well better have finance options available because it's going to be needed. And and I think in that survey, it was in the 40s percent of people that needed or wanted the shop to supply some kind of financing. Now, I would never recommend like we did in the old days where we let people literally finance at the shop, right? I'm not a fan of that, but there's too many other credit companies out there for first tier, second tier, third tier financing to have that as an option. Is it important in the initial experience with the person on the phone, listen, to try to set the appointment and then part of the close is, hey, look, we have financing options just in case you need them. Do we need to pre-sell financing so it's not uncomfortable later on? 
I would say yes. I mean, I would say most don't. It's when they get a no, I can't afford that. That's when a service writer's, oh, by the way, we have financing where, you know, some of the big chains, whether it's a department store or an auto repair, they're like, hey, if you put this on your XYZ card, you know, we'll give you a free oil change or 10% off this or whatever, because the big guys know that if you have a XYZ company credit card, they're more likely you're going to come back to that shop and use it. Yes. I had a, this is a true story. I had a customer and this is years and years ago and I'm in a, I'm in Colorado where it's a military town. So we got five military bases. So that plays into this, you know, the independent shop that I worked at, we just had a, you know, 12 month, 12,000 mile local warranty, right? Cause you know, all these nationwide warranty programs weren't available then. And so my friend brought his car in and he goes, man, I, I hate to do this, but I got to take it to Firestone. And I go, what are you talking about? He goes, well, I don't like them more than you. I don't, I'm not a fan, but at the end of the day, they got two things. I, I don't have the money to make this repair. So I'm going to put it on my Firestone card when I'm going to get relocated to North Carolina or something with the military. I know that there's Firestones there. So if they screw it up here, at least I can get it warrantied there. Like you guys don't have the warranty and you don't have the financing. Right. And this was 20 plus years ago, Carm. But now as I'm going through these surveys, I'm thinking about these things. If a shop doesn't have a nationwide warranty and financing now, they're really missing the boat because there's no excuse, right? It was harder to do that 20 years ago, but now with technology and all these, you know, every auto parts place has their own programs that have these warranties. Like there is no excuse not to provide that for your customers out. Exactly. If I called you up, Greg, even you, Matt, and said, look, I'm struggling a little bit and I would love to find out what would be the five biggest pillars that I need to be working on in my business. And I think I can multitask all of those. Example, cost management, margin, labor rates, sales. What would your recommendations be to me who needs to worry about the next two to five years? So Carm, for me, that's not enough information for me to help you. Just like when a customer drops off the car and says, I need you to tell me the five things I need to fix on the car. Okay, we'll go look at it. No, that's not the right answer is I need to know, Carm, how do you use that car? Is this the one you got to commute two hours a day to, or do you have to just go 15 minutes to work and back? Is this the one that's in a moment's notice? Do I got to go visit my sick grandmother or no, we have another car for that. Is this the car that's paid off or you're still making payments? Is at least, is it owned, right? All of those qualifying questions would be asked from a good service advisor to find out what your driving habits are. So for a business owner to call up and say, what are the five things I need to work on? I got to say, okay, we need to do an analysis and really let's talk about, you know, what is your car count, ARO, business type, what are your employees, what's your sales process, yeah. all these things yeah. in order for me to tell you, hey, this is where I think the lowest hanging fruit or, you know, like a SWOT analysis, what your threats are. So that's a, a political answer to say, no, it depends. Oh, no, because you stole mine because I was going to compare it to a car. And I, yeah. So you just did what I was exactly what I was going to respond with. So I say, Greg, I don't have the time. I'm not quite sure I know what you're trying to ask me. Is that individual with a closed mindset who's unwilling to give up enough information to help guide you in the right? Okay, because there's 25 things we have to worry about. If we're going to pick the top five, I need to know what your blood test looks like. And, and I respect that. Do you find if, if somebody picks up the phone and says, listen, call my buddy, Greg. Greg, you, put, you call the guy. You get together. And he's unwilling to give. That person is going to be out of business in five years, 10, eight years. If they're not willing to tell you what it looks like so that you could recommend fixes. There's a lot of this going on in our industry. Where I guess I want to completely make sure I'm 
completely tracking with what you're saying, Karen, but the, I'm too embarrassed. I got too much pride. I'm too private to tell somebody what's really going on. Even though I may be asking for help, if I don't disclose everything that's going on, I'm not going to get the help that I need. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. What do you say to a person like that? Get up, get over it. Yeah. Become transparent. Get a financial statement that actually means something. Yeah. One one of the ethos we have at Transformers is you got to leave your ego at the door. Yeah. If you're not willing to do that and be transparent, especially with a coach, I mean, maybe you don't want to, first time you go to a group and there's 20 of the shop owners, you don't want to tell them all your dirty laundry out of the gate, but gosh, darn it. You better tell the coach or the person that's supposed that you're paying good money to help you dig out of this hole. But you're right. I've had, you know, when I first started this seven years ago and, and did coaching, I let people continue to string me on and I would continue to coach them on, oh, this happened this week, this happened that week. And where's your financial statements? Well, they're working on it. They're working on it. A year and a half later, they're still working on it. Like I can't, we've got to get this fixed. So I don't put up with that like I used to. Like you said, if I need the blood test, I need to know what we're looking at here. It seems to me that's such a big part of where the marginality of our shops are today. The unprofessional side of our business is going to work in their hobby and not running a business, stop being a shop owner, stop being a business person, right? Right. Someone just said that on the podcast today. It's like the perfect analysis. But if you took your top clients 20% net more, stronger than all get out, and you brought them into this little mini private 12 key customer group and went around the room and says, all right, you know what's going on in our crazy world today. Can you guys tell me one thing that you're looking at? I'm trying to find out, should we be doing some cost analysis? Should we be reviewing our labor rate ground up? Should we be seriously looking at our labor rates and our margins? Just at least paying attention to them. So let's talk to the top 25%. Yes, for sure. We got to be talking about our pricing models for sure. Okay. You know, you look at an airline. They don't have, it's not $200 to fly from Denver to Las Vegas, no matter what time of day, what time of year, it's always 200 bucks. No. That is, I I have to stop you. That's the best analysis I've ever heard about a pricing model. Because every day, every time of the day, every season of the day, the price changes. Right. It's amazing. Yeah. But that's something that the shops have never really adopted because, you know, frankly, nobody has come up with the technology and the algorithms that hotel chains and airlines and rental cars but yeah, it's, there's a very much based on demand pricing for these other companies. Why wouldn't we manually do what we have to do? You know, we know that April slows down. We know that September slows down in most places. Why, you know, do you fight that? Do you say, do you raise your prices in the summer and lower them in the winter? Right. And I'm not saying there's a right or wrong answer, but it is a discussion that absolutely should be taken. Is it the parts margin or we're not going to fluctuate our labor rate? That's going to probably be pretty steady, right? As long as it's the right rate. I think it all depends on your sales process. If you're in a state or in a company that like, hey, this is our parts and this is our labor and this is the breakdown, you're opening a door. You know, we had to have both of our heaters and one of our air conditioners replaced in the house, right? It bought the house used and, you know, the stuff was 22 years old or whatever. They didn't break down and I tried to force them to, but they didn't break down. This is how much the furnace is. This is how much the labor is. This is how much the couplers are. The, you know, it was like, no, it's whatever it was, $9,000 each or whatever some crazy amount, but being the business guy, I'm like, you know, they're onto something. Most consumers are like, okay, nine grand, it is what it is. They're not going to be like, okay, I want to know how much every washer and electrical connector is. And now I know certain states, you have to kind of tell more than in other states, but you know, hey, we're going to get all this done. It's going to be $1,422. You can get it all taken care of today. 
you don't necessarily have to break down those parts and labor. So are you discounting the parts? Are you discounting the labor to come to that price? That's up for discussion as well. Okay. I love the idea. I'm going to run it by you, Matt. What do you think of that? Having that flexibility based on time, seasons, the up and down roller coaster of sales, seasonal? Well, I mean, the auto repair industry, especially on the independent side, just seems like we operate under these arbitrary rules that I don't know who they, who created them. They did. Right. They, they, <laughs> they would quote unquote, they, and then nobody knows what entity that is, but that's how we've operated forever. Look how hard it is to get some shops to change the labor time from the labor time guide to add 20% to it because you live at the rust belt and they don't want to do that. It's not unreasonable to do that, you know, or just use it as a means to come up with an estimate, but then there's going to be a, a real charge as you get in and see what you're dealing with, or the inspection process came up and helped you decide what this process is going to look like. I don't know why we have these rules that would prevent us from altering our pricing during season, do the season, or what kind of car we're working on. You know, is this a 25-year-old vehicle or is it a five-year-old vehicle? Some shops do that. Some are very hesitant to do it. So it's completely reasonable. I mean, we're there to make money and we do that by providing you a service and that's like any other business. So we got to do what we got to do to make money ethically. Greg, are we going to lose some shops in the next three or four years? 100%. And I've been talking about this since you and I have got to know each other since whatever, 16, 2016 and 17. I'm surprised as many have held out as long as they have, right? But we did lose over COVID at least 6,000 independent repair shops went out of business. Before that, you know, with 2018, there were shops going out of business. And so I think you're definitely going to see the, the mom and pops that don't have the money to hire and train the good talent. They can't invest in the technology. There's just no way they're going to be able to keep up. Now their overhead is low. And I think that's why they've survived as long as they have, but the times are changing for sure. You know, if I buy, you know, a $40,000 Mercedes Benz scan tool, I've got six shops I can share that between, right? Whoever needs it working on there. If I'm a two person shop and I'm going to work on more cars than Mercedes, that's a big expense just for that, you know, yeah. for two people to use versus, you know, 25 or people to use. I got to say something about mom and pops. I went to uh, our college that I'm on the board and they invited two shop owners and me to go in and talk to the students. And when the instructor introduced Tom, Dan, and Rachel and me, he said, they're from mom and pop operations mm. and they weren't. Okay. Yeah. I had to get up and say, I need to correct you, Mr. Instructor, whatever his name was. I said, these business owners are not mom and pop because he was drawing the parallel the week before the dealership came in and talked to me. Oh. Right? And so in order for them to understand what Tom, Rachel, and Dan were doing there is they're mom and pops. <laughs> so it kind of set the tone for us to say, Tom, I'm 37 years. I've got this many techs, you know, we just bought ATIS. It's like, they're all sitting in there. Not even, they don't even know what ATIS is. So I go up to the whiteboard and I start drawing out what the acronym means. This is first year students, right? Trying to acclimate them into what the industry is, what their jobs could be. But I'm telling you, my listener, this, it's one of the other things we probably have to fight. And that would be the students and so many other consumers looking at what we do as the independent service aftermarket as mom and pops. Right. Love that you said that. The other dynamic that I see when you're talking about shops, there's this false narrative out there. It's understandable. I don't blame the general public for this because it's the narrative is, is what it is. 
but that is, well, the dealership is the place that fixes the newer, modern, highest technology cars. They have technicians that are trained in those things. The independent mom and pop shop, the smaller shop, the franchise, whatever, that's where I take my older car because now it's out of warranty and those guys are probably kept up on that technology, but they're not going to fix my 2022 Lexus. They can fix my 2007 Lexus. The general consumer doesn't know that the independent shops usually have higher trained technicians because they don't have the luxury of the factory training. They don't have the luxury of just going to the parts department and grabbing a module and plugging it in to see if it fixed. They actually got to know hook up a lab scope and figure that out. It's up to us as the independent repair shops to change that narrative. But when our buildings look like they're, you know, have been updated since 1970, our uniforms look like they're from the 1980s and our equipment looks like it's running on Windows 888, that's <laughs> what we're going to tell the consumer is we're here for your old stuff. We look like bomb and pop. We smell like bomb and right. pop. <laughs> right. Exit to your point earlier. Yeah. I just love it. You're not a mom and pop shop. I mean, technically, I guess <laughs> 10,000 square foot one, but I suppose technically I couldn't agree more though about the dealer should be, that should be the place to go. Like they should be able to handle everything on that car line that they sell. And it's not the case. I've never seen, I've never seen it so often in maybe the last five years, how many of those cars end up, this isn't bragging like about Riverside Automotive or Matt as a diagnostician or tech. But just the fact that these cars are coming from the dealer under warranty into your place, into our shop, the customer is upset to get repaired. Yeah. It's mind boggling. And it's the myth that he's talking about that the dealer should be with all that training and the, the special tools. And uh, I'm guessing support, they would have tech support that we wouldn't have. And yet the cars end up at our shop. Interesting. We just talked to two mobile diet guys about an hour ago and the story is yeah, we're going to the dealerships, finding these small little problems. The car was there for four days. We fixed it in 10 minutes. Wow. Right? I yes. hear it too often. Yeah. Some of that is newer vehicles. Some of it's older vehicles that, you know, dealers don't retain tech sell that well either, which is an interesting concept, but that when their techs are getting younger and younger, they don't see the old stuff. So they're not familiar with these systems at all. And then if the vehicle has some age on it, they're not used to seeing that repetitively after it's out of warranty. Cause when it's under warranty, everything's shiny, new comes apart. When it's older, they're seeing failures they're not familiar with. They're not familiar with the corrosion that took years to take place. So their mind doesn't go that way. The mobile tech or the independent tech that's servicing these vehicles is familiar with that system. Their mind goes to that quicker. I kind of want to say something too, about the future of shops is I'm torn. I am very torn on that subject because it's something we've you know, from my perspective, I've heard for decades that these shops are going down with this new tech. They won't be able to keep up. They're not buying equipment. And yet locally in the last maybe three years, there's been three shops closed. And that's never happened before. When I was, the shops that were there three years ago were there when I was a little kid. I remember all these shops. The thing with the technology is we have so much out there to help keep these places afloat, be it a mobile you know, mobile diagnostic tech or mobile tech, mobile service. We also have equipment for like Repairify or Opus or Autel and Top Done where we have remote programming or a tech can remote in and do some work, be it help with diagnostics, do some programming, coding, calibrations, stuff like that. I don't know how that affects. It's hard for me to project how that ends up because you know, like I said, we've always been waiting for this stuff to happen where these shops that aren't keeping up are just going to fall to the wayside. And sometimes it doesn't happen. Specialty 
shops, specialty technicians, specialty car lines, the right software management system, the right CRM system. It's not easy today right? to make sure you're managing every, you got tools, you open up a shop, not anymore. I think yeah. it would be, you know, as we're sitting here on the apex floor of Joe's garage, yeah. right? You got SEMA across the, across the boulevard and everything that we have upstairs. Can you imagine just taking the general public, Joe off the street and just walk him through this oh. and imagine like this yeah. is the aftermarket auto repair industry. Yeah. Yep. They have no idea. Yesterday I did the episode about Bay 10 and the students and the mentors came in and fixed the car and they gave it away today. I had what, eight or nine students in here. The studio was packed. It was fun. It was great. And I said, have you walked around? You have any idea our industry is this big, powerful, all this stuff that we have. The student, it goes back to the point we were talking about earlier. You can find yourself a great, fruitful career in the automotive as we are a tech company by promoting it to our customers. But we're not telling people at our counters, and it goes back to maybe service advisor training, Greg, that we can fix the cars of all makes, all models, all sizes, and in every year. You got a brand new car, they can't fix it, the dealer, bring it here. We know you're going to go there for your warranty. But they get stumped, we're going to help you. We aren't doing that. We're not reaching out and telling our story. Anyway, it's a perfect one to end to close. <laughs> I usually never have the last word. It's about time. 1,200 <laughs> episodes, 1,600 episodes. Yeah, it's about freaking time. Enough of them, yeah. Greg Bunch, thanks for being here, man. You bet. You bet. It's always a blast to I know. Uh, be on your show, Carmen. Last call. And, uh, Thank you for having us at Transformers last year in Cancun. We'll miss it this year, but boy, that was a blast. And you were speaking of John DeJulius. You know, we've done two episodes with him. We've recorded one right. while we were at Transformers. He doesn't live far from me, you know. Up oh, in, right. Up in Buffalo. Right. He lives in Cleveland. And he would vacation at the resort that Tracy got married at. Oh, just, cool. He's a cool guy. We, yes. we ended up bonding really well. So that this, was a smart guy. This is interesting. Now he missed the last meeting, but I got, I mean, got indoctrinated or whatever you want to call it to the million dollar speaker club with the national speakers association oh. and guess who's in the group ah mr Must john DeJulius himself good for you congrats thank you that's wonderful Fonzo riverside automotive red wing mass hey thanks for your views from the aisle seat no problem minnesota did i say that <laughs> it was mass i'm not sure where the, that's massachusetts yeah, I don't know what I said. <laughs> it's the last day. It's the, the last, last day episode, we are so tired. And I'm getting ready to pack the studio and yeah. get out to dinner. Thanks, Thanks guys. For having Appreciate it. Thank you, Carm. Thanks for being on board to listen and learn from the Premier Automotive Aftermarket Podcast. Until next time.